Hello and welcome to a new series of our Dinesh the Cities ABC Open Business Council YouTube podcast series. I'm quite excited today uh, because I'm going to talk about things that is a lot of my passion, but it's someone that uh, I know for some time that I met uh, in multiple places around the world, but very exciting as well about the personality of David L. Kasten, that is a... Uh, uh, someone I really admire, but as well someone that I have a huge respect because of the different areas that he can coordinate. So welcome to our series, David. It's a big honor to have you here. Thank you very much, Dennis. It's, uh, it's great to be here. So I'll start by going through your fantastic bio, and it's a very out-of-the-box bio, let's put it that way, because you, <laughs> you touch a lot of different boxes, let's put it that way, but as well, you deal with a lot of very sensitive things, but you kept... Um, opening and as well expanding that capacity, which is quite uh, amazing, just, just touching this thing. So um, David L. Kasten is the co-founder, president and CEO of Pullback Group. That is a strategy consulting firm headquartered in Kansas with clients all over the world. And the Pullback Group focuses on delivering analytical tools to help leaders manage risk to meet strategic goals. David is an accomplished executive leader that has been managing a comprehensive background spanning over 30 years and leading uh, very big projects from the U.S. Department of State in the Central Intelligence Agency and the U.S. Department of Defense. During his career as a U.S. government civilian, David has been appointed to elite leadership positions and has been managing sensitive natural, national, in the case of the U.S., security matters at a strategical level in a joint interagency, intergovernmental, and multinational national security. On the top of that, David is also Lieutenant Colonel and uh, uh, the US Army Reserve and the combat veteran with assignments primarily in special operations units. He earned a bachelor's in art in social cultural anthropology from Arizona State University and uh, as well um, a master of arts in war studies from King's College London. Uh, and a Master of Science in Strategical Studies in the U.S. Army War College. And uh, is a graduate of the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College and the University of Foreign, Military and Cultural Studies. And on the top of this, and we could go for a couple of different things, but I want to highlight as well that currently uh, David is doing a PhD program um, around uh, the areas of uh, technology and security and all the areas of security in particular that we're going to be talking today. And as well, uh, as he said, in the more human part, is uh, happily married and there's two awesome teenagers, which is wonderful as well because he has a human touch. I think if you look at the bio like this, and it's a great way to start. So David, welcome, it's really exciting. I'm actually, um, it's really an impressive CV because very first people that touch all these areas from military intelligence and cities and countries, it's quite impressive. And as well, I know that you are as well very involved in smart cities. So I want to start with a very early stage uh, question that is about your background. So uh, I think someone like you that ends up working with uh, the CIA and works as well with governments and with a lot of sensitive areas, but as well, there is a researcher because it's, I think you comprehend a lot of different things. I think you see the James Bond films and all these things, and you always think about just the action. We forget all the research that is behind it and all the, the really important diligence as well, because 
in the end of the day, we, we are in a very secure world, independent of all the media makes us feel. So I would like to go through that background. How did you, um, mostly how did you arrive to this amazing career, but you're starting from family, background, and a bit of education as well. Sure, wow. Uh, that was quite an intro, thanks, uh, Dennis. Um, yeah, you talk about the, the, the humanist aspect of, of, of somebody's bio when you're you know, introducing somebody in, in whatever forum. And, uh, and that's exactly why I ended up putting the things in there that I did, because more oftentimes than not, when you, when you see people that have these, you know, these profiles in public life or in business life, um, you never really see the human side of it. And uh, throughout all of our conversations that you and I have ever had, I've always been pretty clear that, uh, that I am more of a humanist than I am uh, a technologist, uh, especially as you and I have been involved in some pretty technical conversations uh, over the last year or so. Um, I, I always have to, to, to remind those that are around me that I'm, that I'm a humanist and I'm not uh, that much of a technologist. So in terms of my background and how I got to this point, um, I was very fortunate that I um, uh, was uh, raised by a, uh, an officer uh, in the Air Force. My, my father was an officer in the Air Force. Um, great parents, great upbringing, had the opportunity to travel the world while I was young, um, spending most of my, uh, of my youth in, uh, in Spain. Uh, at uh, Torjon Air Force Base outside of Madrid, um, which I always kind of joke up until when I was eight years old, I actually thought that I was Spanish. Um, so uh, when my dad finished up that assignment there in Spain, we moved out to Arizona. Um, and that's where he had his last assignment in the Air Force before he retired. Uh, but that, that, um, the, the traveling in, in Europe and in Spain at, at a very young age had a, had a huge impact on me. Um, so I, I did uh, my elementary school, my junior high, and my high school uh, life in Arizona uh, in the North Valley and uh, North Valley of Phoenix, and uh, then ended up joining the Army. Uh, joined the Army when I was 17. And uh, I started out my career absolutely not knowing what I wanted to do other than uh, I, I, I thought that, you know, if... If, if you're going to live a life, you need to live a life of adventure. And, and certainly if you're going to go into the military, you need to do something that you can't do anywhere else. Otherwise, what's, what's really the point of going into the military? So, uh, so I enlisted uh, uh, a month after I turned 17. And uh, uh, there were some hiccups along the way. But, uh, but eventually, I ended up uh, making my way uh, to the 82nd Airborne Division, where I was a sniper in a reconnaissance platoon in the 3rd Battalion, the 504th Parachute Infantry Regiment um, in the 82nd Airborne Division and um, went, to, uh, went to Panama with them. Uh, so I deployed um, uh, with them. That was my first uh, combat experience, uh, first of, of many as it turns out, uh, but, uh, but really, um, really found a calling uh, in some regards to, to the adventure of it all. Um, and of course, the, the, the seriousness of, of, of the job and uh, the consequences of it. Um, and from there, I, I, I was transferred to, uh, to Europe, uh, to Germany, uh, where I was uh, a senior scout in a long-range surveillance company, uh, part of 7th Corps, which was um, the U.S. Army had two very large formations uh, in Germany uh, during the uh, late 80s, early 90s, 5th Corps and 7th Corps. And uh, I happened to be assigned to Seventh Corps, and Seventh Corps was the one that was uh, that was deployed uh, to the uh, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia to um, uh, to to participate in Operation um, Desert Shield and Desert Storm, 
this is significant because uh, that was my first interaction with the Middle East. Um, and as we'll find out later on in our conversation, um, I will uh, eventually have ended up spending close to nine years uh, coming and going uh, in the Middle East and, and, and living for the better part of the last five years in Saudi Arabia. So, um, so that, that first um, interaction with Saudi Arabia uh, for operations Desert Shield, Desert Storm had a big impact on me as well. Um, after that, uh, 7th Corps deactivated. Um, I had the opportunity to, uh, um, to leave active duty and to take advantage of my, my GI Bill, uh, so I did. Um, so I, I stayed in the reserves, uh, the Army Reserves, while I was going to college and um, uh, went to Arizona State University, as you mentioned. I got my degree in sociocultural anthropology, um, double in art history and religious studies. Uh, and then meanwhile, I, I participated in the, the Reserve Officer Training Corps, the ROTC program, and, and got my commission as, a, as an officer in the Army and then went back on active duty and I went back to the 82nd Airborne Division. Uh, so I was an infantry officer in the 82nd Airborne Division, uh, the, the 3rd, or I'm sorry, the 2nd Battalion, uh, 325th Airborne Infantry Regiment. And it was while I was there that I deployed to Haiti um, right after um, uh, the, the, the invasion that, that really didn't go down, the uphold democracy um, portion. And, you know, this was um, 97 when I ended up going to Haiti. Uh, and, you know, fortunate for me while I was there in Haiti, I got exposed to uh, the national level of the U.S. government. Um, and that really planted a seed with me that I wanted to do a little bit more than just, just be an infantryman, a paratrooper uh, in the 82nd Airborne Division. And, uh, and not, not surprisingly enough, it's also the place where I met my wife. I met my wife at uh, at a party at the U.S. Ambassador's house, um, which was very fortuitous for me. I, uh, I used to goof around with um, my buddies that deployed with me, and they hated it. They didn't particularly enjoy their time in Haiti. And of course, I laughed because, you know, I, I ended up getting a girlfriend and then ended up getting a wife out of it. So I was like, I don't know about you guys. I had a great time while I was there. Um, so uh, it was actually at that time, too, that, as I mentioned, that I got exposed to the national level. So upon my return back to Fort Bragg after this deployment to Haiti, um, I made the decision that I was going to look to leave active duty um, and I was going to join the, uh, the, the government. And um, uh, so I ended up doing that. So in 99, my wife and I, we ended up marrying between 97 and 99, so actually 98. Um, we, uh, we moved from Fayetteville, North Carolina, up to Alexandria, Virginia. Uh, which is uh, Northern Virginia, um, you know, right there at DC, uh, Southern Maryland, the whole national capital region. And uh, it was there that I, that I started my journey uh, into the federal government as a civilian, uh, first doing uh, counter drug operations um, in uh, South and Central America with the Defense Intelligence Agency, um, the Defense Human Service, as it, as it was called back then. It's, it's since changed its name. Um, but I was involved in doing uh, counter-drug operations in Central and South America. And uh, from there, I, I transitioned over to the United States Department of State, where I was uh, uh, selected uh, to, um, to be a, a Diplomatic Security Service Special Agent. Um, this was uh, around 9-11. Uh, so we went from, from being a, a national government that was really focused on counter-drug operations and then uh, after the attacks of 9-11, we automatically transitioned over to doing counterterrorism operations. 
And, uh, and in my role as a diplomatic security service special agent, um, I did a lot of um, uh, uh, protection of, of, of foreign dignitaries in the national capital region. And then I transitioned over to being the assistant regional security officer in Abuja, Nigeria uh, during a critical time. And then uh, I had a couple of other DC assignments and then went back out uh, to be the assistant uh, RSO in Kuwait City, Kuwait. Uh, but I was dual hatted in that I was the Iraq support unit RSO at the same time. Uh, so this was, uh, this was a very interesting time period in the, uh, um, uh, during the US's war on terror uh, because uh, Kuwait at that time was the, the central hub for all of the State Department people going to and from uh, Iraq uh, during Operation Enduring Freedom. Um, so also during this time period, I stayed in the reserves. And um, I, was a, I was a captain at this time and I, uh, I assessed for a, um, a special mission unit and um, this special mission unit um, uh, takes on uh, reservists um, that we call them individual mobilization augmentees. And so I was, uh, or an IMA. So I was an IMA to the special mission unit um, for uh, what turned out to be 17 years um, and uh, really had a significant impact on my, my military professional life uh, because since uh, the war on terror, uh, I had been mobilized um, many times, but, uh, but six specifically um, where it, they were for uh, longer than a year duration where I was in um, some uh, positions of significant responsibility. And um, so, yeah, it was, it was during my time in, in the State Department that, uh, that I was a direct hire um, into the Central Intelligence Agency. Um, at this time, the National Clandestine Service um, was, was looking to bring people on uh, that had, you know, military or law enforcement backgrounds that had, you know, certain security clearances and can get additional security clearances. Um, so I was, I was a, a direct hire um, and uh, spent the, the vast majority of my time in the counterterrorism center uh, as a clandestine service officer. Um, I deployed with the, with the CIA, um, multiple headquarters assignments, and um, really uh, enjoyed my, my, my time there. Um, and uh, consequently, um, I had the opportunity to go and do uh, policy level related issues for the Department of Defense in uh, areas of um, counterinsurgency, counterterrorism, and irregular warfare. And uh, so uh, I had the opportunity to do that and, and I, I took it. Um, so I culminated a, a, a over 20 year career as a federal government employee uh, with the, the Defense Intelligence Agency, um, the uh, Department of State, the Central Intelligence Agency, and uh, the, the Department of Defense. Um, I retired from, from federal government service uh, as a civilian in uh, 2015 and um, uh, spent a significant amount of time mobilized on active duty after that uh, up until uh, 2018. And uh, then I decided that I was going to start my own consulting firm, uh, strategy uh, consulting firm. And how that came about was because I kept getting phone calls from friends and colleagues that um, were, were looking for help. They were looking for help to, to do this or do that. And the vast majority of them knew that I was no longer in government service, um, still in reserves, but no longer in, in you know, government service. And... Um, uh, when you have a background like I do and you, you, you meet so many people all over the world, 
um, you have an opportunity to, to really make some, some significant relationships and friendships. And it was because of those relationships and friendships that I kept getting these telephone calls and requests to, to help out with this thing or that thing or this project or that project. And, uh, and how that translated into me developing this uh, consulting uh, company, this consulting firm, just seemed like a, a natural progression and a natural, uh, natural fit. So uh, that's about it in a, in, a, in a nutshell, Dennis. And oh, I probably should mention along the way, uh, the government uh, saw fit that I should probably uh, be educated on, <laughs> on what I was doing. So I've uh, gone through a, a lot of training in each one of those, those different government agencies, um, but, uh, but had the opportunity to go to the Command and General Staff College um, online virtually, uh, did it virtually online. Um, and then um, the Red Team Leaders course had a chance to, to go and do that. So I'm a certified Red Team Leader. Um, and um, did my master's at King's College London, um, the War in the Modern Era, the War Studies program. Um, I did my, my, uh, uh, my dissertation on the, uh, uh, a new grand strategy on um, uh, basically looking to the past. Uh, in this particular instance, the National Security Council Directive 68, um, how, that, uh, how the, the, the framework of that particular strategy on containment uh, could inform and should inform the way in which the U.S. government crafts and implements strategy to deal with emerging threats in the in the 21st century. So that's what my my thesis, my dissertation was at King's College for my master's program. And then uh, I was also picked up um, during this time period uh, to be a fellow um, at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, the the seminar seminar 21 program. I was in class 29. Um, were uh, a very, very competitive uh, program to be selected for. Um, I was uh, fortunate enough to squeeze through and, you know, fall through the cracks and was ended up selected. And uh, so I spent a year uh, as a fellow in that particular program, foreign politics, international relations, and the, the national interests. And all of this kind of built on uh, where I wanted to go academically. Um, I had you know, what, what most would, would agree is a, uh, a nice balance and complement between being a, uh, a practitioner. Uh, what I wanted to do even more so was I wanted to balance it out with the theoretical. Um, so um, uh, later on, I was selected by um, the, the Army uh, for the U.S. Army War College, uh, their senior service college, the U.S. Army War College. I did my master's in strategic studies, uh, master's of science in strategic studies. And, and it was all of that that now has built on uh, my focus uh, to begin my PhD program in the fall uh, at King's College London uh, in their uh, 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 defense studies department in Shrivingham. So that is sort of it in a nutshell. And I, I kind of feel like I rambled a little bit, but uh, wanted to kind of try and get all that in there. That's the background. That's how I ended up where I am now. And um, yeah. Well, that's quite impressive. So I, I want to touch, there's a lot of things there, of course, that sure. could get an entire podcast um, and some of them quite sensitive. But I, I would like to, probably one question that for me is always relevant is how did you bridge a very intense military and intelligence career with a very intense and ambitious uh, research and academic career, which is quite impressive because you have two masters now doing a PhD 
and uh, and of course there's a lot of work on on even in or East, war history but on technology and a lot of different things that you've been actually studying this and i think especially this particular test because i interviewed previously a general so it's always interesting to yeah. <laughs> right now i have an intelligence one actually it was quite a very good interview with the general because we discuss a lot of things especially in history and in this case here you are looking at war in modern world a lot of very high profile security studies so i would like to touch this bridge um, so first of all, let me just say it was incredibly difficult and in in, in to, to use the vernacular here in the United States, it sucked. Um, as a matter of fact, in, in one particular deployment uh, that I was on in 2013, uh, I was mobilized on active duty. And I, I, should, I should probably explain to, to the listeners um, that I'm a military intelligence officer um, my, 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 in the reserves. My, my current uh, position is uh, I'm the, the, the senior special operations military intelligence planner for the U.S. Special Operations Command J-5-2. The J-5 office is the strategy and plans and policies um, department within, um, within the command. And so I'm, I'm the only reservist in that J-5 shop. So in my, in my, my reservist capacity even today, um, uh, that's what I do. I'm a, I'm a strategist. I'm a planner. I look at policy related issues. But, uh, but to go back to my, um, uh, my point about my 2013 deployment, um, I was in uh, the, the Horn of Africa uh, doing a very, very uh, high risk, high profile, no fail uh, type mission uh, in an environment that was you know, constantly under scrutiny. And um, um, I, I had my academic requirements <laughs> for, for King's College London while I was deployed. And, um, you know, my, my civilian job, because I was a government employee at the time, they, they basically just kind of put everything on hold. And they recognized that, you know, you've been mobilized on active duty. So there's no requirements on, on that civilian end, but on your military end, you know, you're, you're doing your, your job, your, your day in and day out. And, and um, you know, as an operations officer, um, you know, forward deployed, um, your, your days are very, very long. And it was very difficult, Dennis, to be frank, um, to be able to, uh, to, to balance it out. And in fact, you know, thank God for Dr. Marcus Faulkner at uh, King's College, who was my, um, uh, one of my lecturers at the time, uh, one of my tutors at the time. And, and you know, I, I had this very frank conversation with him about, hey, man, I don't think I can do this while I'm deployed. This is killing me. And uh, so he kind of kind of talked me down off the ledge and, and worked with me and um, helped me get through that, that particular deployment. And then, you know, when I got back into a more reasonable battle rhythm, uh, pattern of life, as it were, uh, it was a lot easier for me to, to get right back on board and, and to knock out the requirements I needed for, for the degree. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, Dennis, it was not easy. Um, the War College was not easy. Um, uh, it wasn't easy because it's a, it's a two-year online program, the distance education program that I was selected for. And, uh, you know, you've got family responsibilities, you've got work responsibilities, and, and then you've got these academic responsibilities, and they all pile on themselves at the same time while you're trying to, you know, keep yourself healthy and sane. Um, you still got to work in, you know, the functional fitness stuff. And, you know, thank God for me, I was able to you know, in this particular case, put a, a prison gym together in my garage. <laughs> so a lot of, uh, you know, hybrid, you know, CrossFit and Jim Jones stuff in the garage with a lot of kettlebells, um, you know, save the day. But, uh, but yeah, uh, the long answer to your short question, 
it, wa it wasn't easy, it was difficult, but uh, in the end, um, uh, it's been incredibly rewarding as, and has paid huge dividends. No, amazing. So, so I want to touch a bit of your research, and sure. and I think because there's there's a, a lot of uh, so high profile things, and and a lot of work from the like you mentioned the MIT and as well the fellow of MIT, especially in, in foreign and politics, but as well the areas of um, military and cultural studies, sure. and as well now you're doing as well a PhD uh, with King's College that is going to be touching security and a lot of there. So I would like to look from this evolution of your work. Um, until this part of the PhD, because it's quite, uh, sure. I think this is an area more and more sensitive, especially as we become more technological driven, but as well, it, you always have to look at history and how things evolve and a lot of the humanity and the military. And I think especially with the, the new cyber wars that we're going and a lot of things related with precisely how technology becomes the new intelligence as well and all the data and things like that. I would like to see how do you see this, especially in your studies and as well in the light of the new PhD that you are right now studying? Yeah, yeah so um, all, of my, uh, all of my academic um, aspects of, of, of my, my journey here um, have really seemed to, and th this wasn't by design, uh, it, it just kind of happened to, to fall into place this way, but it, it all seems to have uh, built on itself. Um, when, I, when I first started off uh, at Arizona State University at ASU, um, I, I was, I was fortunate enough that, that, that I had a, 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 um, an academic advisor that, uh, chose all of my first classes for me, um, because she, she knew me well enough that if I didn't get hooked on education, then I probably wasn't going to stick it out. Um, just my personality just wasn't going to stick it out. So, so she hooked me with three classes. One of them was a, was a, a history class. One of them was a humanities class, and then the other one was an anthropology class, and uh, which I, I thought was, you know, and in retrospect, I thought, well, that that's kind of weird, but you know, thank God she ended up doing that, uh, and instead of you know me immediately taking an algebra class, an English class, and a chemistry class, or something like that, because if that would have been the case, I would have, I would have thought you know college is stupid, and I would have you know moved away from it, but uh, but I was fortunate en enough to to be hooked by it, and it was the anthropology, it was the the Indiana Jones uh, hook to it that absolutely resonated with me because I am not going to lie. When I saw Indiana Jones um, and the, the, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, when I saw that movie in the movie theater, it absolutely like blew my mind. And, uh, and of course, you know, all these years later, you know, somebody would have said, you know, Hey man, you know, Indiana Jones was an archeologist that really means that he's an anthropologist because archaeology is one of those subdisciplines underneath anthropology. And I was like, Oh man, this really worked out for me. But, uh, uh, but I, you know, I'm a humanist. So I went with the sociocultural aspect of it. And, um, and that's what really kind of helped me get through. And, and it's, and it's funny because I remember these conversations distinctly with my colleagues and my peers at, at school. It's like, what the hell are you going to do with an anthropology degree? Well, I can say without hesitation that I have used my anthropology degree every single day of my life. It's through that anthropological lens, that sociocultural lens, that I'm able to understand and navigate my way through uh, any sort of environment. And I've lived extensively in Africa. I've lived extensively in South and Central America, extensively in the Middle East, Central Asia, Asia, Europe. 
and and you know having that that sort of academic discipline as an anthropologist has really helped out. So fast forward, build on that with the Command and General Staff College, and really understanding staff functions and how human beings work within a complex and dynamic environment. Boom, checks that block. Then take that a step further into you know how do you craft and impl implement strategy to deal with incredible complexities in the 21st century, dealing with non-state actors, um, you know, individuals that are able to use uh, social media platforms to cause revolutions. Think of the Arab Spring, think of Tunisia and, and the filming of um, a, a produce vendor setting themselves on fire and that going viral on the internet that, that basically, you know, was the spark to the Arab Spring. Um, you know, understanding those sort of complexities and how human beings interact with that, within that environment, understanding what it takes to radicalize somebody from being a, a moderate um, uh, in, you know, whatever they are, uh, religious background, to be uh, radicalized, whether it's a Christian, a Muslim, a, a Buddhist, um, it, you know, really understanding those, those human conditions that allow for that to happen, I think is significant. And again, touches back on my anthropology background and then take it another step forward to my fellowship that I did at MIT. We're dealing with humans, we're dealing with foreign politics, we're dealing with international relations, uh, all within the context of, of, of a sovereign nation's national interests. You have to understand humanity and you have to have an, an understanding of where we come from as a species to really kind of put this all together in context. Same thing at the, the, the US Army War College. Um, it, it just was a, a constant building on these, these themes of how do human beings interact with each other on this stage, the world stage, when it's become more and more complicated. You, you, you mentioned the, the, the cyber aspects of this, Dennis. We have yet to really understand the, the complete spectrum of, uh, of benefits and detriments that are associated with the cyber world. Um, I think that we are, we are continuously peeling the onion to, to understand more and more about, uh, <laughs> about what, is, what is possible in, in the realm of technology. Um, 20 years ago, I never thought I'd be doing an interview like this using my laptop in my home with somebody who's in, in London right now. Uh, of course, 10 years ago, I was like, yeah, we can do this. It's, it's going to be going to be expensive, but we can do it. Five years ago, you know, we can do it less expensive. And now it's, it's practically, I'm, not, I'm exaggerating with this, you know, it's practically free and, and it's seamless. And we've had no interruptions. There's been no buffering with the, with the signal. Um, so I really do believe that, um, that we are in a, in, a, in a challenging period now. I do believe that all of the academic stuff that I have done has built on, on itself. And as I mentioned earlier, was not by design. Um, and I think what, it, what it's really done is it's really sort of teed up this, this uh, uh, PhD proposal that I have, this research question that I have in, in ways that are probably going to be morphed over the, over the years of, of, of me, um, you know, refining uh, the, this research with the PhD. But I think it's really set it up. And, and you know, the research question that, I, that I'm looking at is, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an examination of our professional military education system. Um, and how we, we train people, much like myself, um, to become strategists. How do we, how do, we do this in a, in a, in a way that um, allows for us to be able to craft and implement 
these strategies um, in an ever more complicated world. Um, and, and, and again, all this to say that it's just kind of built on itself over the years. Yeah, Kukune, this is quite amazing. And I'm, I'm quite excited about that part because yeah, this all the advances and that research that you did, I think, especially mixing the human part and the technology and as well, the, of course, the military and all the intelligence is, is amazing because it, it, and it's actually the most sensitive. And I think that's why they wanted to study because you need people that have this complexity of looking at things, especially in a so complex world. And I think it's going to be more increasingly complex because, for instance, right now, and I want to pass to my next question, that is, of course, if we look at... Um, um, and a career like yours, I think a huge part of the military background is about people and managing a leadership on people and leadership on people. And how do you lead with different areas of people, oppressions and cultures? Because especially in, in the intelligence, everything is so global in, and so interconnected that becomes increasingly more complex and as well more not black and white, because let's say you might have... Uh, yeah, um, a president that is funded by someone like we had previous presidents in Middle East, in Eastern Europe, and they might have uh, a company that has five different uh, locations in terms of taxes and, and funding. And uh, unfortunately, some of the bank might get in a very trouble stuff. So I want to touch one, one question here is so from especially the intelligence and of course, the CIA is a massive organization that is still one of the biggest corporations and, and or governmental corporations and organizations in the planet. Um, not going through anything because of course I know that is intelligence, but I'm particularly interesting. So what would be like the biggest challenge that you found, especially you touched, we are doing this interview, I'm in London, you are in the US and, and we are using technology. And of course we're using Zoom and recording the video and then we're going to to put it in YouTube, which is the second biggest search engine in the world. And that is going to be syndicated for a lot of different things. So that's a huge component of technology in everything we do right now. And this has been in the last 20 years. Before that, there was as well a lot of technology because of course, militaries are normally, if you look at the internet, it was partly developed by military. And, and as well, most of, actually, if you look at history, 90% of the developments on technology come actually from yeah. military experiences. But as well, the components of humans. So I would like to touch from your background, how do you see this evolution, and especially in the things you've been doing, and how did it change your career? And as well, having the background of the researcher, how do you see this shifting the way we, we act as society and the way we act as countries and organizations? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, uh, Dennis. Um, uh, in the, in the mid-'80s, the most technologically advanced tool that, that, that I worked with as a you know, as a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne Division was our night vision goggles. Um, so our night vision goggles and our way in which we were able to secure um, radio communications, those were the two most sensitive ways or the sensitive uh, technology pieces that, that, I, that I interacted with um, as, a, as, a, as a young, young paratrooper. So fast forward to almost 36 years later, and I cannot even describe to you the amount of technology and advancements just in this thing right here, you know, with this, uh, this, this smartphone. Um, that in and of itself is, is absolutely, you know, mind-blowing. But, but we've become numb to it because it's, it's been introduced to us gradually over time. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, 
don't need to remind you that, you know, 10 years ago, we were still using flip phones. Um, you know, half of the people were using flip phones and, you know, the other half were using this new weird shaped thing called a, called an iPhone that you could actually put music on and that you could actually text with and not have to use the number buttons to, to get to your letters, you know, on your flip phone. Um, yeah, I mean, that was, that was 10, that was 10, 12 years ago. So, um, yeah, I, I've, I, I've been an observer of it, but, you know, I, I keep, I keep mentioning to you that, uh, um, that, you know, it's, it's the human factor that, that I'm most uh, interested in and, and, and not into the, um, uh, the hardcore aspects of the technology because I'm never going to be, you know, a zero and one kind of guy. I'm never going to be that way. But the really cool thing about the teams I've always been on, both in my civilian life and in my military life, has been I don't need to be the expert on the zeros and ones because I've got a teammate with me that is able to do that. So, you know, I provide, you know, my expertise, my humanist expertise, you know, my leadership, um, my, my ability to plan and implement the plan and execute the plan. Um, you know, that's, that's what I bring to the table. And, you know, it's, it's almost like uh, to, to use a, a pop culture uh, reference, it's, it's, it's like the Avengers. Um, you know, everybody's got their superpower that makes them, you know, that much better of a teammate, you know, Black Widow, you know, she's the assassin or, you know, Thor, you know, and his, it, it, each one of those Avengers brings something to the table and complements the other. Well, in, in my, um, uh, in my journey of leadership, both in the military and on the, the civilian side, it's always been that you build teams. And, um, and in those teams, it, as long as you're able to, to articulate a vision of where you want to go and that everybody understands what the mission is and everybody has the same sense of purpose and is a, around like-minded individuals, then there's no obstacle that, uh, that uh, you know, a team can't uh, overcome. Um, you know, technology has made it easier for us to be able to do those kinds of things. And, you know, to your earlier point about you know, being in different locations all over the world, technology has enabled us to be able to do that seamlessly. Um, when I was uh, uh, mobilized on active duty, um, one of my last roles that I had uh, from uh, 2016 to uh, late 2017 was I was a, a joint special operations task force commander uh, in the Middle East. I had teams all over the region. Um, I was headquartered in one location but I had teams in all these other different countries. Technology allowed for me to be able to have mission command, which is, you know, I, 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 they, they always worked with uh, a disciplined initiative. Um, you know, the command and control that we had was decentralized, but, but, it, but we were able to, to uh, accomplish our mission because we had technology enabling us. So I've seen a lot of changes. Um, uh, you know, I, I made a comment earlier about uh, about how you know peeling the onion of technology. We're only now just beginning to to understand the full depth and breadth and scope of of you know the possibilities with it. Just take for example the recent hacks in the United States government. Um, we're still still learning um, uh, what that was all about. Um, you know, the ability to uh, to do uh, the internet of things, artificial intelligence, blockchain technology, um, the array of things uh, like um, folks at the Argonne National Laboratory are looking at right now. Um, there is a whole spectrum of things that, that is 
hopefully, hopefully we'll be able to, to make the human experience on this planet a lot more enjoyable, which I think ultimately is the, uh, is the intent of, of having this great technology is, is making the human experience that much more enjoyable. No, completely. And I think that's the most important thing. So I want to ask one question. Uh, feel free to answer what you want. But I think sure. for me, it's particularly important uh, because if I look at my career, some of my biggest successes are part as well my biggest failures because they made me change and they made me adapt. So someone like you that has been, of course, in so critical fields that are normally dealing with life and death and as well dealing with very comprehensive, uh, sensitive subjects for countries and future of countries. Um, any kind of special for people listening to us that are quite young and are considering a career in these areas, or at least that are curious, like I am, um, is what would be like some of the highlights that you saw special in this bridge between the different parts of your career, different locations, and the diversity of different things that you mentioned, because you, you are a humanist, but you are as well an intelligence former um, uh, CIA and as well uh, a military still with, with a reserve that can actually be called at any minute. So I would like to touch this because I think you need to humanize the, the figure you mentioned, the Ultron and the, and the Avengers or the James <laughs> Bond, because there's a lot of yeah. myths when it, I think one of the biggest problems and success as well, because we all love Hollywood, is that Hollywood stereotypes uh, all the intelligence role it, to a certain point is actually very realistic because if you look at James Bond, there's a lot of things that are realistic, but then there's all the show off that is kind of different. And if you look, for instance, for uh, I think, well, we, we lost um, recently uh, the, the, well, I forgot right now the name, the, the major writer of the 20th century uh, in terms of intelligence. Yeah, so yeah. Carrie, yeah, and yeah. John Lee Carrie. And for instance, he was about the, the characters of him are much more about diligence, detail, munition, and I'm actually a huge fan of him. But, but at the same time, he was an ex, uh, a military intelligence officer himself. But, sure. but my main question here is, is mostly about how do you deal with the complexity of stress? And as well, like you mentioned, you have a family as well. You are human. I think like everyone is a human. It's not like James Bond that has a, a woman in every corner and that kind of a crazy <laughs> We stuff. can't all be that lucky. <laughs> We can't yeah. that lucky. I don't think it would be affordable as well because I don't think it's possible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> even if you you are on that yeah. direction. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, you know that, that's a great question. So one of the things that, that we that we always um, emphasize is uh, physical fitness. Um, so uh, you know I mentioned setting up that uh, um, that garage gym, my my uh, my prison gym in my garage. Um, that, that had a lot, uh, you know, thank God for that. Um, so, you know, I don't run, uh, as fast as I used to, but I, I swim a lot more. Um, I, you know, I, I do a lot of that functional fitness, uh, work more than I ever have. Um, that, that is a, a way to, to, to sort of help with, with stress and to, to, to build and, and, and develop. Um, but, but, but he, I, I think you were alluding to something a little bit earlier on in, in your question. And, and that was uh, sort of the aspect of failure. And um, uh, you cannot have successes without failure. And I, I, you know, I'm, I'm out of it about this. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very clear with my, with my teenagers, my kids about this. You know, it's okay to fail, but it's not okay not to learn from that. Um, because I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, Dennis, I'm, I'm, I'm one of the, the, the biggest advocates of learning from your mistakes. Um, that's the only way that, that you grow and, and you, you build and you develop as a human being as well as, you know, in whatever profession you're in, uh, whether it's on the government side or on the, 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 the 
you know, the military side or the, um, you know, the business side, um, it's okay to fail. It's even more important to, to learn from those failures. And, um, and I think that, that if there were, you know, younger folks that were just starting off on their careers listening to this right now, um, you know, embrace your failures. But, but, but I also, I also got to say that the, the, the part of this is having that emotional intelligence to be self-aware, to know that in fact, you really did, you know, fail at something, you know, besides somebody, you know, telling you to your face that you failed, you know, move out or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, unfortunately, there are people in the world that are not self-aware, <laughs> that do not have a high uh, emotional intelligence and, you know, don't accept things like failure. Um, I can think of one glaring example of that uh, within the, the current recent U.S. Uh, political arena. Um, that, that it is very important to understand that, um, that you're, you're going to fail along the way, uh, but, but learn from it, pick yourself up and continue to move on. I think you answered perfectly. And it's really very powerful stuff. I think the emotional intelligence is more and more important. So that brings me to the next question that is um, related. Uh, um, and I think especially, so you build a career as well as the president and CEO of Pullback Group, which is, you've been keeping it discreet, but you've been working with very big international organizations, governments, cities, and I think it took you as well to the smart cities, which I want to talk in the separate question. Sure. Yeah, but yeah. can you tell us about pullback and how you've been managing that, especially with the bridge between military intelligence and working with private organizations, non-governmental as well? Because I think that's another bridge that is important as well too. And I think it's good for everyone listening to us because if you want to build a big company or a big startup tech, you need to work with people like you. For instance, one of the successful instances of the Israel ecosystem is that everyone has a military background, so they have a massive yeah. discipline. And that's one of the things I've been trying to do, even my startups, is the discipline, which is so difficult because it's not about working more, it's being disciplined. Uh, I would like to hear about the, the pullback and a bit of your background on that. Yeah, so pullback was born out of a, um, uh, a 2017 Christmas trip to, um, uh, to Ireland. Um, so uh, bear with me on this for a moment, but, you know, fr from living in Saudi Arabia for the last five years, uh, it, it, it made sense for us to not come all the way back to the U.S. during the, the Christmas holiday season. So instead, what we ended up doing was we would, we would go to Ireland, um, which, you know, my, my wife and I are, are both of Irish descent. Um, you know, it, it made sense for us. Um, and it was during one of these uh, one of these Christmas visits uh, in 2017. Uh, my wife and I were were uh, on the Strand in Dublin Bay, uh, making our way out to the uh, the Pullbig Lighthouse, uh, which is where we got our name up for our, our consulting firm. Uh, and we were having this 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 conversation about um, how to um, how to take everything that we've both learned from our our, our government services and and put them. Um, uh, to use in a in, in a um, in a way that that absolutely uh, was not a, was not a great leap, right? So um, a, a career in government, um, leading and and executing high profile operations, takes a tremendous amount of discipline and a tremendous amount of planning, um, and uh, it takes a tremendous amount of stakeholder analysis, um, pre mortem analysis. You know, all of these kinds of things so that you absolutely mitigate any risk to whatever it is that, that, that you're doing. Uh, and in my particular case, 
um, you know, was within the, the CIA and the Department of Defense and the Department of State. So you can just imagine that those are high visibility. You know, if, if it fails, uh, whatever it is that you're trying to do, it's going to make the news. Um, so you do everything that you possibly can to, to mitigate that risk um, as, you know, as best you can. Well, the beauty of it is, is that it translates very well into the private sector, um, especially as um, in, in one particular case, uh, one of my clients uh, was in the aviation industry and um, they, they were asked um, uh, you know, to, to be able to create and develop uh, this particular aviation capability in a very austere environment. And uh, so I was brought on to, to help that, that organization um, you know, plan and execute to create a strategy, plan and execute it, and then then implement it. Uh, and then by keeping the, the in, in my particular case, my role was to keep the train on the tracks and, and help them accomplish uh, really ultimately what they were looking to do. So it absolutely translates over. And, and it was one of these conversations that I had, um, you know, with, with my wife that, uh, that I realized that it absolutely translates over from you know, the, the government side into the, um, the, the private sector side. So that's how I was able to make the transition. And, and it was uh, the successes that I had that build upon themselves. And then the, um, it was by word of mouth that I was able to, to, to gain the, the clientele uh, that I had. Um, you know, one little vignette, I, uh, one of my clients um, in 2019 was um, uh, Adobe. We had a very, very boutique, very bespoke thing that uh, we were helping them out with. And, uh, and that was by word of mouth. Um, when, when, you, um, when, when you have integrity, when you have uh, uh, morality and ethics, and that is at the, car, the core of, of who you are as an organization, uh, and in my particular case, the brand, the, the Polbig Group brand, um, there is, there's nothing that you're gonna do to compromise it because your business uh, development plan is based on word of mouth and your reputation and your ability to, um, to produce uh, high quality products in the end. Um, so uh, sort of a long way to go, Dennis, to, to explain that there is an absolute transition from what I was doing in the government sector and taking it into the, uh, into, into the business sector. No, completely. I think it's, a, it's an interesting way as well, how you bridge this thing. So next question. So I have, uh, um, so as an, ex an expert in intelligence and security, um, of course, you've been dealing with a lot of the challenges and complexities of our world. But one of the things I'm particularly interested is how do you see um, the evolution, especially when it comes to cybersecurity? I know that it's not completely your area of expertise, but I'm interested to see just from a top level. Um, and as well, your studies on security, for instance, I think you've been right now, you're starting the PhD in King's College, which of course is one of the most reputable organizations on this. So when you look at cybersecurity right now, I think everything is cybersecurity from governments to elections to uh, sensitive, non-sensitive. For instance, if we have a hacking or Google like happened two weeks ago or three, we can have the entire part of the economy paused. But then, uh, for instance, I did a research recently in terms of cybersecurity and, and just for instance, there's hacking groups this is actually white hat groups that have like over 1 million white hacker. So we're talking about 1 million people doing white hacking as we speak officially. So this is no longer, it's the size of small countries. So I think the point right now is that this is kind of affecting everything. So 
so from this increasing, and of course you, your expertise is, is, is precisely bridging the humanity part of this and emotional intelligence and as well all the leadership, but as well looking at history and looking at the present. So how do you see this moment in history and, uh, and especially these sensibilities around your area of expertise that is security and intelligence? Yeah, so this is unprecedented. Uh, this, this era that we're in is absolutely uh, unprecedented. Um, there are a lot of um, um, uh, academic thinkers that, um, that have been looking at this with, uh, with a very, very keen eye for, for quite some time now. Um, uh, at, you know, at, at the end of the day, it's not going to get any less complicated. It's going to continue. It's, it's going to continue to be uh, more and more complicated. Um, th there's, there's really no other way to describe it. Um, I, I think what we have to, you know, sort of conceptualize we have to conceptualize that, that we, we need to be able as humans to be able to sort of navigate throughout this. And it's gonna be a constant part of our, our, our daily existence. Um, you know, I've used this as an illustration, you know, before, but, you know, think about how much time you actually spend with that, that phone in your hand and your neck creak down looking at it. Um, I, don't, I don't see that that is ever going to change. I mean, I'm, you know, as I'm mentioning, I, I got two teenagers that, that you know, are, are, I mean, their, their phones are permanently stuck to their hands. And, um, I, I, you know, this is the generation where they, you know, they've grown up with the internet. They've grown up with, with all of this uh, uh, technology. Uh, it, it's only going to get more and more used used and, and, and become more and more of, of a factor. All right, so with regards to, to, to security, the only way that you can be completely secured uh, as an organization or as a, as a business is to completely disconnect from anything and everything that, that has to do with the internet of things. That's it. You go analog uh, and, and you go very, very retro. That is the only way that you're really gonna be able to secure your, your information, your, you know, your, your data, uh, the, 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 the people of your organization. Um, so, so then we have to rely on, if we accept the, the, the fact that this is going to be part of our lives forever, um, then we have to accept that there are some uh, gives and takes that are associated with it. Um, you know, am I okay with, with being able to track with this, be tracked with this thing wherever I go in the world? Well, it's, it's the trade-off, right? Genesis is an oversimplification of a very, very complicated, um, very intense conversation that is going on right now within, uh, you know, within academia, within the private sector, and uh, within governments. Um, the, the restrictions that are put on government employees, for example, to go into secured buildings is pretty phenomenal. We don't, we don't take those same sort of restrictions and apply them into the private sector, but we should. Um, and so those are some of the, the, the conversations that I'm involved with uh, with our clients. I do take those best practices from the government and I translate them and, you know, tweak them a little bit, but I translate them into, into the private sector um, and, you know, morph them uh, as, as, you know, for, for, you know, best practices for them, what works for them and their, their company. Um, but, but for the most case, this is, this is an incredibly complicated and incredibly vexing um, topic that I think we're going to be uh, wrestling with for the foreseeable future. Brilliant. So you touched the IoT and of course the yeah. payoff that we have in all these things. So I want to touch the, the, the areas of AI. So 
artificial intelligence, I think for instance, at the moment, for instance, this is official information. Uh, I think a couple of weeks ago, the French government, uh, the military French, French part of the government put officially a bioweapons, human uh, engineer documentation, official regulatory and ethic proposal. So this is not science fiction, it's not uh, Avengers, yeah. uh, it's not Marvel, it's, it's something that is happening as we speak. So I know that this is, um, as a humanist and someone that works in history, so we're going to have, it's just a question of time and probably we have already a lot of things happening on that period because I've been working with robots and interview, actually I interviewed a couple of robots. It's, so we're going to have as well, this kind of probably in the first time, first stage in the history of mankind where we're going to be dealing with probably androids or uh, weapon mechanisms that are going to be probably evolution of humans, but are going to have a huge change in the way the military, military scenarios and as well all the security infrastructure has been managed forever. Um, yeah. So um, I know that is not necessary where you are studying, but I want to touch this. Just, no, but, but, I, but, think, I, but yeah. I do, I, I, I am involved in those spaces where this conversation is, is being had. and. Um, to, to, to take what you were just mentioning and, and elevate it just a little bit more, it's, it, it then becomes the, ethnic, the, the ethics of using artificial intelligence in the, the conduct of warfare. And, um, uh, and it's also the, the ethics of using art, artificial intelligence in your private business, regardless of, of you know, what your private business is. Um, how much do you rely on artificial intelligence to make decisions for you? And how much don't you? Um, wh when does it ethically make sense? When, when does it ethically not make sense? So in the, the, the particular case of, of, of governments, using artificial intelligence in the, the conduct of warfare, I'm arguing, and I have been in those conversations, I am arguing that artificial intelligence should never be involved in the conduct of, of warfare as it relates to uh, the actual taking of another human life. Um, I don't think that, that we should remove ourselves as humans from that experience and rely on the autonomy of an artificial intelligence entity to make that decision to either strike or don't strike. Um, that I think is, is an important um, conversation to have um, by any government, but specifically here in the United States government, as we have a history of using um, unmanned aerial platforms in the, the conduct of, of warfare. If we take the human out of that, I believe that, that, we, are, um, that we are taking away and diminishing so much of, of our humanity from this. Because really at the end of the day, when you, when you discuss warfare, the idea is to create so much pain in, in, uh, on, on the adversary side, whether it's actual deaths or economic pain or you know, political pain or you know, whatever it is, to compel that other side to not want to engage and want to capitulate to whatever it is your, your demands are, right? That's kind of you know, the, the nature of conflict in, 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 the, in the first place. If we take the, the human aspect out of the, the killing part, um, we've done something horribly, horribly wrong because it, I mean, it, it goes back to, to, to the moral and ethical comments that I made earlier. Uh, and there is a, there's a whole line of philosophy and thought that goes into this, the ethics of warfare, that goes all the way back to St. Augustine. Uh, and, you know, the, the proportionality, um, you know, the, you know, is it just 
to have these wars. And in, in these wars, are you just? There's a whole line of philosophy that, 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 that surrounds all of that. And, and I, I don't know of any artificial intelligence uh, platform that's out there that has a philosophical grounding. <laughs> so, um, so I, again, I'm, I'm a humanist and I'm looking at it from, from those perspectives. Um, I just think that, that having artificial intelligence involved in the, uh, the conduct of war, warfare, I think we just need to be, we need to put, you know, put a serious look at that. And, and I, for one, would say, you know, keep it out of it, especially if you're dealing with strike operations. Does that make sense? No, completely makes sense. But I have one, uh, it just brought me to another question related with that, because I'm, yeah. I'm particularly interested in these areas. And, and as you know, I've been working a lot in AI. So one of the questions I have for you, and I think uh, for instance, I was seeing recently um, podcasts between Lex Friedman and Max, Max Tegmark, which is actually one of the leading AI experts in the world. And uh, both of them, one, of, one from the MIT and both of them actually relate to the MIT. And one of the things that uh, Max, Te uh, Max was saying that I was really impressive in the sense of um, Max Tegmark that wrote actually a fantastic book precisely about the, the risks of AI and the ethic issues on that. He was mentioned something that is very important that you touch right now. I'm completely with you about the ethics and Santa Christine is, is more important than ever right now. But the challenge is that at the moment, he was using a case study of, for instance, military that was during the Cold War there was a, a nuclear episode that uh, there was an office from the US, uh, USSR that actually, uh, thanks to all of us, thanks God, <laughs> because if the guy would not read the a kind, of a, kind of a tip from the US uh, and other nuclear submarine, we probably would have a nuclear catastrophe. And uh, what he did was that he actually read the, that the US didn't want to engage in any war and they actually communicate that to his officials officials, and he managed to calm down everyone to the point of avoiding a potential nuclear catastrophe. So this happened before all the technology that we have right now. But for instance, if you look at uh, the drones and for instance, imagine just a simple example. Now I want to be provocative, but in a, in a very contextualized, because I think talking about these topics makes us think about the topics because I, I, it's fantastic to hear from you, uh, a former CIA member, just discussing the importance of looking at ethics and as well looking at St. Augustine, which was one of the biggest theologists in history. But I think the most important right now is definitely one thing is the ethics that we think and, and I think we are engaging. But then when it comes to desperate, people do desperate things. And normally it's not, the problem is not the technology because the AI at the moment is very incipient. But for instance, if you look what has been happening in the use of social media, especially to use to manipulate countries, manipulate populations, and as well, just even to disrupt our entire lives in the good and bad ways. So I just want to touch again, uh, because this is happening very fast, and especially in AI. Uh, if you look at Ray Kurzweil, he mentions that you're going to have singularity around 2000, 2040. I think it's going to be earlier. I think you're going to be in the 2030s, so in around 10 years, we're going to have already singularity technology. But if you look at most of the military work right now, is mostly done for drones. And uh, we're starting to have, so let's say if you hack a drone, and if you put a, a malicious code, a malware in a, in a drone, at a certain point, the drone can get completely out of control. And if the drone has a, a, a missile or something like that, we, have, we can have serious problems or something like that. So I just want to go more through 
because on the, on the strategy, I think we are all aligned with this. I think even the most crazy, unless it's some kind of uh, extremist group that, that has no really sense of purpose. But my question is, how can we avoid that this scenario really takes us to a very dystopic uh, cyberpunk world? And second, how we apply precisely this historical sense of ethics that you have? I'm, I'm sorry, did you say cyberpunk world? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Boy, that was, uh, that was nice, uh, nicely woven in. Um, yeah, no, sorry. I, we have Santa Christine and uh, as we all do yeah. coming from a poetry background, I love Well, that. I mean, if you really want to get heavy, <laughs> I, I, I actually carry this around with me wherever I go which is my Marcus Aurelius meditations. Wow, fantastic. Uh, Wish he was a military, he was a general as well, yeah, okay? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, actually, his son was a disaster, but the guy was a genius. The guy was <laughs> so a genius. He's and actually We're still reading his meditations on uh, stoicism, you know, 2,000 years later. Um, okay, so, so to answer your question, the first thing is never get, get into a desperate situation. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, do anything and everything that you can possibly do as a sovereign nation to not put yourself in, in a desperate situation. Um, there, there, there's always, you know, as we say, there's always three options, you know, uh, I think that's a good, good rule of thumb, but, uh, it's the third option that that's always available to you that, that really sort of assuages this, um, this, this concept or this you know, horrible, you know, uh, concept of being, of being desperate as a, as a sovereign nation. So, so within the international relations, you know, lexicon, you've got realists, liberals, and constructivists. And, and I think that, that, you know, the, the combination of liberalism and constructivism, I think is probably the, the, the best way to go because everybody then becomes so interdependent. The sovereign nations become so interdependent of each other. Uh, and so, you would like to think, and so far, you know, knock on wood, it, it's, it, it's worked that we haven't had these sovereign nations escalate to, um, you know, that, uh, that desperation that you described from that, that incident during the, the Cold War era. Um, I do believe that with the, the advent of, of technology, two things are probably, um, you know, to our benefits as, as, as a species. One, you know, the technology used properly is, is a benefit to us. Uh, and then two, because of that use of that technology, it has the possibility of being corrupted. Uh, just like your, your, your comments about, um, uh, about introducing a malware into a, um, uh, an unmanned aerial platform. Um, there are a lot of you know, safety protocols and security protocols that are put in there to try and avoid that. But you know, there is a thing called the, the, the human factor and there is you know, a, a chance for error or you know, malicious intent by, you know, by other actors. But, uh, but we like to think that, that, that the safeguards are in, that that scenario that you described would, would never happen, you know, knock on wood again. Um, but, but I think the, the real key to all of this, uh, Dennis, is through the international relations construct to have this, you know, interdependency of, of all of these, you know, 189, I think, if my count's off, 189 sovereign nations, you know, be interdependent of each other that, that will help diffuse any sort of, you know, rise to desperation by any one singular uh, actor. Uh, I think that's, that, that's the key. No, I think you, again, sharp and to the point. But I, I think let's pray to make sure that uh, yeah. we can well, actually that. get that. <laughs> you pray too. Well, yeah. actually, more than pray, we need to make actually, I think if you create like public uh, um, 
I think public, well, that's why researchers like you agree because your research can actually help and, uh, um, and as well look at this. So well, yeah, we best already, it's whole, yeah. Yeah, it's a historical precedence that you can put to where you can say, hey, you know, there was a situation, you know, early 1962 or something like that. Um, I'll just use, you know, that specific time period. It was the, the, um, the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, using that as an example of how that desperation was absolutely de-escalated, you know, oh, yeah. uh, by, by the human factor. You know, it, it, it wasn't, is, it is. It, yeah. yeah uh, you know, that made all the difference. I mean, you had reasoned, reasoned discussions by, by self-aware individuals um, that absolutely de-escalated um, that, that particular, I mean, there's obviously a lot more involved in that, but, but you get the point. I mean, it's, it's the, the human factor that de-escalated, um, you know, both the, the Cuban Missile Crisis that I mentioned, and then, of course, the, uh, the uh, scenario that you did. No, I think it's a very good point, and I like the way you, you approach it both from a military but humanist perspective and very synthetic. So we passed one hour and a half, yes. which is, uh, I think, a record. So I'll, I'll, I have still a lot of questions, and I think that we might get to another podcast sure. just about so, this because it's a great topic. So I, I want to still go for three questions if it's sure. okay for you. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how much time, but uh, if you, if you are it. generous with your time, this is great stuff. And I think everyone will like it. I'm enjoying like it. <laughs> no, me too. Fantastic. <laughs> so I think if we, there's still a couple, uh, this is great things. And I think there's not so much discussion on this. So one of the areas, and this touches well data and the areas of security that you've been researching and you've been involved yeah. is precisely smart cities. And, um, and this touches, I think, everything we're talking about because smart cities are the epicenter of, first of all, our communities, our society, yeah. but as well tech, funding, and a lot of work you've been doing. You mentioned Saudi, they're creating for his Neon, which is supposedly the most advanced $500 billion city ever created from scratch. Um, we have London, New York, uh, Los Angeles. Um, every city right now is becoming a smart city. We've been working in some projects in Vietnam for creating Hanoi, Ho Chi Minh City. Um, at the moment, every government is looking at this. And, and actually, a smart city touches everything you said, because in one end is our data, our mobility, our security, because, of course, there's a lot of different things. And so... And there's well the funding, because in the end of the day, we need to look at a lot of part of the intelligence is where the money is coming from, where the money is going, and how do you create a more sustainable yeah. way of creating business that yeah. creates sustainability and ethics, like you mentioned, because in the end of the day, if people have money, or at least if they have like some kind of um, sustainability, I don't think they need to do some extremist craziness, because most of the craziness come from, we have nothing to lose. So how do you see these bridges between both your research, your military, but as well your work with Bubei? Yeah, so all of this is connected. Everything that you just talked about, everything that we've been talking about for the last you know, hour or so, um, this is all connected. And, and the way that, that, that I see it connected is the, the, the human experience. The human experience relies on basically four things here in the modern era. We, we need energy. We need energy to, to, to run our laptops to be able to have a, a, you know, a Zoom conversation like this, right? Food, which obviously we're, we, we can't survive without it, um, as, as much as we can't survive without fresh water. So, and then how, how, do, we, how do we get from you know, point A to point B? And how do we move our food? How do we, how do we um, you know, transport our energy? How do we handle all these things? So I, I've always kind of viewed it as like a, this, this four-legged stool um, within the context of our human experience in the modern era. 
and that is energy, food, water, and transportation. Um, you know, if the, the legs of that stool are, uh, one of those is compromised, then, you know, the other, the other three would be compromised as well. But, I, but I, before I even go a little bit further, uh, I, 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 I want to just take a moment to, to, to put an emphasis on why uh, the pullback group is even involved in the, 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 the smart cities conversation in the first place. And the reason why we're involved in it is because of resiliency. Resiliency in the form of how do humans and environments, uh, humans in civilizations and cities, humans and the infrastructure, how does it become resilient as it looks to deal with uh, a man-made disaster or a natural disaster? Uh, because those, those things are, are incredibly important, especially in the 21st century, where half of the, half of the population is living in things like megacities that are right on the, the, the boundaries of, 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 our, of our world's oceans. Um, that's significant. Um, uh, you know, back, you know, 500 years, um, and, uh, or even to the beginnings of, of the, the city of Paris. Um, the city of Paris was, was basically built up of like these, these little nodes, these little, you know, one square mile nodes that you can get from any point in that little, that little village within a 20 minute walk. Everything and anything that you needed was in that, that 20 minute walk. And it was those roads that connect you to another village that, um, that you know, somehow you know, expanded your world and, and you got to, you know, visit a whole entire different universe a mile away just walking down this road. So you fast forward to what we have with the industrial revolution and then all of a sudden, you know, industry is on the outskirts of these towns. We start dealing with pollution, we're having water related. I mean, you just see the history of all these, these, these problems that were basically solved for humanity for, you know, hundreds of years, thousands of years, right? And then all of a sudden it got really complicated after the, the, the industrial revolution. Well, why did it become complicated? Well, it became complicated because our, our wellness and our ability to, to survive in these environments were threatened. Um, you know, our food source, our water source, the way in which we were able to, to generate energy, whether it was coal or, or it was, you know, cattle dung or sheep dung, you know, whatever it was. And then fast forward to the 21st century where we're dealing with, we're dealing with pollution issues that we have never had to deal with before. The, 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 the complications of plastics plastics. You know, what we thought in the 1950s was sort of a life-saving, you know, uh, world uh, view-changing uh, remedy, everything from Tupperware to artificial limbs. And, and, and now we're really seeing the detriment of those, those kinds of things. Um, and and then, uh, then, of course, how, how uh, sovereign nations interact with each other because of those energy, food, and water transportation-related issues. That's how I got involved in, in, in smart cities, because I, I really do believe that, that if people were to able to, to simplify their lives, if they were to you know, not drive as much and walk a lot more and ride their bikes a lot more, I think that their wellness would be a lot better. If they were able to, to go with locally sourced food, I think their lives would be a lot better rather than these mega farms and these mega um, ranches. Um, I, I just think that there's, there's something elegantly simple and elegantly beneficial to, to humankind when, um, when, when we go back to what we know to be really good, simple ways of, of living. Okay, we can't go back into the past, 
But as we start to build our cities in the way in which we live in the future, I really do believe that you can implement a lot of those concepts from our past as humans to enrich our lives with technology now and, and in the future. And so that's, that, that's kind of why, why I, I, I've approached it the way that I have. And I've worked with the clients that I have is because they're all like-minded. They, they, they seem to see the, the, the world the way that I do. You know, less pollution is better. <laughs> you know, um, uh, better, purer food sources are better. Better, pure or purified water is better. Um, you know, less, you know, uh, transportation-related problems is better. Um, and it's just kind of a, you know, kind of a, a simplistic way to approach it, but it's, but it's very, uh, it served us very well. And I think it resonates with a lot of people. You look specifically at, um, uh, at what uh, Ken Larson, Kent Larson is doing at uh, MIT, um, at the, um, uh, the, the city science research um, group that, that he's got there at the, the MIT Media Lab. Those are the concepts that, that he's been looking at, uh, most specifically the social infrastructure. Um, you know, the transit-oriented development, um, using artificial intelligence and Internet of Things um, to develop, you know, smart cars uh, or smart bicycles. Um, you know, looking at the way in which we interact with our environment, our physical environment. Those are, those are, are critical, critical things that, that have a way to benefit humankind, but also benefit the environment um, so that we're, we're not as destructive as we have been. So, so that's kind of how, how I got into it. And I, and I think that, that um, uh, the Pulbeg Group and, and our strategic partnerships within, uh, you know, everything that's going on um, with, you know, the research that's being done at the Argonne National Laboratories, the research that's being done at MIT, um, the, the, the Cities ABC Initiative, uh, the World Smart Cities Forum, th this is all connective. And, and it's all, uh, all goodness. And, and I don't know uh, any reasonable person that, that is out there that would say any of this is not good and is not, not, not for the betterment of, of, of humankind. But anyway, so that, that, that's kind of, kind of how I fell into it and just sort of my philosophies on it. No, no, it's amazing. And I think you, let's work on that because I think that would as well solve a lot of the problems we have. So in terms of wrap-upping, and I think we're going to pass close to two hours, uh, but I'm sure that you're going because on security and I think some of these areas of history of military, and I love as well what you mentioned, the military code of conduct. I want to come back to, so um, you have quite a unique background because you have three heads. You have the military intelligence head, you have the research and actually quite a lot of research. <laughs> I don't think there's a lot of people that have like two masters and, and as well one PhD uh, and in these areas of expertise and as well a lot of studies, military studies. And then of course you have as well a business hat and you've been working with investors and with a lot of um, uh, business entities and as well making bridge between government and private. So how do you see this kind of having all this background and I think right now in terms of the, your views on general and society, especially as we get everything digital, and as well as we, even the areas of what we discussed in terms of uh, the things that you mentioned, they're getting the basics in place, but how this is going to affect. And I would like, especially as well with two teenagers, so you are as well seeing the way they deal with technology, but at the same time, you have to keep all these different things. So I'd like this last question in terms of your visions and as well, how do you see these things, especially for people to us, and how do you take this to research and to your personal life? Because I think it's important. I think one of the things, the challenge with especially listening to experts like you and a lot of people that we speak is that people 
go too much to the macro and they forget the micro or forget the daily life. And then they go back and they have this kind of theory of conspiration that 5G is some kind of craziness uh, stuff. For today, I was talking with a partner in Africa and the general perception is that the 5G is the kind of something from the devil. And at the moment, it's the most advanced and secure technology system that we have. But this is not the perception. And even in the US where you are, there's a huge amount of people that don't believe even that the earth is round. So we have a bit of a complex situation here that we have all this level of knowledge, but then we have a lot of knowledge to almost actually, and actually the irony is just to finish the question, is that one of the things for me that is amazing and crazy is the quantity of work that some people put themselves to do to create fake things. So they are creating, and, and sometimes it's the same as doing research, but it's all fake research. So we have a, a problem of perception, a problem of, of uh, uh, even what is the concept of truth and ethics. Um, but this is actually creating, so we are using technology not only to take us to the front, but to take us to a, a base, because even this most conservative, uh, um, whatever conservative or extreme, right or left, because the extremes are always extremes. And, and they are always using technology to get the same crazy goal. So, and of course, this creates a lot of issues because we have a lot of uh, issues coming out of this. But I want to see how do you see all this? Uh, it's a big question, I know, but it's uh, <laughs> the last one I would like to, uh, and especially yeah. with your uh, humanist hat, which is a very important thing here. And there's not intelligence because we need to keep the two. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you saved the best for last, right? Um, Man, I, I, I tell you that um, when, you, when you see folks that are using this sort of technology that, that you, know, you just described, it's all about control and it's all about, um, uh, about leveraging um, resources uh, to your benefit, right? The, the only reason why people put so much time, energy and effort into creating um, you know, fake information um, is for their own personal gain, for their own personal benefit, whether it's you know, monetary, or, or just the, you know, the ability to control others. Um, that's just, that, that's not good. Um, you know, I, I'm one of those people that truth wins um, and truth is usually based in facts, um, science. Um, you know, as, as I, you know, have begun, um, you know, my, my PhD journey here, um, one of the things that, that you can never argue with is, you know, the, the, the facts and the truth. Um, and, um, and, you know, that, that's one of the reasons why I'm so enthusiastic about, you know, going on this journey for, for my PhD at King's um, is because, um, you know, one, I'm incredibly uh, passionate about, you know, understanding um, how we train people to craft and implement strategies in a very, you know, in this incredibly complex uh, world that we find ourselves in. Um, you, you, know, it, you know, facts matter. And, um, you know, and when you have conversations with people, you know, truth matters. Um, it goes back to, to my, my, my previous comments about integrity and the morality of ethics of who you are and, you know, what you want to be remembered as, you know, from your, your time here on this planet. Um, I don't know of anybody that wants to be remembered as a liar and somebody that, that you know, falsified, you know, information uh, for their own personal gain and advantage. I don't, I don't see that that's honorable. I don't see that that is something to aspire to. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's a very complicated um, uh, set of, of circumstances that we find ourselves in. And I, I know I've said that a lot during this, during this conversation, um, but we really are in this you know, uncharted territory with, with, with a lot of this, uh, especially with regards to 
uh, to the technology and its applications. Um, you know, what, what do I see in terms like the, the, the biggest strategic concerns for everybody in the marketplace as well as within, you know, governments and within the intelligence communities, those, you know, three, you know, separate areas that, uh, that I inhabit. Um, I think that, um, that we have this thing going on right now called great power competition. And it's those near peer adversaries that are out there in the world that, um, that are vying for influence and um, uh, that are vying for influence both globally and, and regionally. Um, to what end will those great power competitors go to um, you know, in order to, to achieve their, their goals? Um, you know, there is, there is this real conversation about, about conflict, uh, short of armed or, or competition, short of armed conflict. Um, I, I imagine, imagine a lot of state actors doing these, these kinds of things to, uh, uh, to enhance their position, uh, in the world, uh, short of armed conflict. That to me, I think is probably the, the, the biggest strategic challenge uh, that we're going to see in the foreseeable future. Um, we're going to see it in the marketplaces. We're going to see it in the technology spaces. We're going to see it in the, 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 the human domain spaces. Uh, we're going to see it, uh, you know, across the entire spectrum of our existence on this planet. Um, you know, our, our challenge is going to be to be able to, you know, take advantage of the opportunities, but avoid the, the, the pitfalls and you know, I don't know, make it home for dinner by, you know, five or six o'clock in the evening, I guess. So, um, I mean, that's, that's an old uh, Woody Allen line that I always thought was hilarious was, you know, what are your goals in life? Well, my goals in life are, you know, to take advantage of the opportunities that I see, avoid all the pitfalls, and then, you know, make it home for dinner around, you know, five or six in the evening. So I think that those, uh, those are, are good comedic words of wisdom um, out there. But Anyways, I hope that answered your question, Dennis. Um, certainly, I don't have all the answers, but, but you know, by God, I, you know, I'm one of those guys that's, um, uh, that's truculent enough to want to, you know, go after it and, and really seek the truth. So, uh, again, I, I'm super excited about my PhD journey um, with, um, uh, with King's College London. Um, I see that there is goodness across all those different uh, disciplines that we talked about. Um, and, and so do my, my supervisors uh, at, at, at King's. They, they seem to be very keen uh, in, in exploring this with me. Um, so uh, I just think it's all good. And of course, it complements what I'm doing at Pullbig and, um, and then it complements um, you know, some of the initiatives that, uh, that you and I have got going on too. So it's all goodness. Wonderful. So I think, well, first of all, I want to thank you for this marathon and this has been a fantastic one. I think we're still excited. I still have a lot of questions, but I think I'll leave it for the next one. Yeah, I think we yeah. passed a new record on the, I think we are the longer <laughs> interview, but I think it was worth. Uh, and I think there's a lot of things that we'll put notes. Um, I had a lot of questions about, especially sure. the, the ethics of military, St. Augustine and military and intelligence. I think that's a good one. You should write a thesis on that. Yeah, I, I, think, <laughs> I think we should have yeah. another discussion on that, except for we need to include a couple of glasses of wine. Yes, definitely. No, no, we'll, we're going to do that. <laughs> and, then, and you're going to be as well in the, the, the Open Business Council Summit. So we'll have actually, sure. we're going to have a... a um, Actually, I want to announce that for everyone listening, we're going to try to have a, a, um, a panel with multiple experts in the areas of cybersecurity and intelligence. So I think it will be a very interesting one. So oh, I'll, leave, I'll leave that for April. We'll have time. 
Thank you so much, uh, David. I, I think everyone will love this. And of course, uh, the, the good thing about an interview like this, you can pause, continue and keep listening. Like uh, we, we did it on a rush on a, on a row, but it was a fantastic one. Thank you so yeah. much. Thank you very much, Dennis. And I look forward to the, the continued conversation with you and your team. And uh, thank you for this opportunity to, to have this discussion today. Thank you.